Welcome to series three of Six Queens. I believe it's series three already. We had a bit of a back and forth trying to decide what the theme of the series was going to be because I really enjoyed our last series. Uh, we did God and War, the the Reformation, and it was really fun, but it was really heavy. So I think we wanted to do something a little bit more fun this time around, but we still wanted it to kind of feel like we're going through the stories of these women's lives and we're like laying foundation and everything. So it took us a minute to figure out what we are actually going to do for this. But we finally committed and we've decided to name the series Origins, like X-Men. <laughs> Do some background and reintroducing to the women before they were queens. Because I think that's important, isn't it? Like, it gets missed all the time. Yeah. Who are these women? What's their actual identity other than being the queen or being one of Henry's wives? Like, where were they born? Who were they born to? What were their early lives like? And all those experiences that shaped them. So then when we go on to talk about different facets of their lives as queens you the listeners and then we the people talking about them can kind of understand how those experiences shaped their queenships right because you know they didn't just emerge out of some bog somewhere fully formed to be a wife of henry the eighth i think a lot of them ended up in that role by chance and i think it happened to be more circumstance than actual um kind of breeding for that role apart from a couple of them and we can cover that in a bit um anyway but everybody kind of belongs somewhere and they start somewhere so why not why not let's look <laughs> and we've talked about this before but a lot the thing that's sort of remarkable about a lot of these women that differs from other queens in you know english british history is that so many of them were you know born into relative obscurity like not poverty but obscurity in the sense that as we'll see in this episode we don't even know when a lot of them were born like they just were not important people. And yet later they became the Queens of England. So in retrospect, it's it's very frustrating that we don't know so much about these people's early lives, but it makes sort of it makes sense because then you you will talk about, you know, Jane Seymour and Catherine Howard's childhoods and you're like, Oh wow, this person really never should have become the Queen of England. Like it's very much I don't want to say happy accidents because a lot of these stories don't end up being happy. Certainly lot, accidents, though. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of no one else wants to do it, so I guess you'll do. Yeah, or just happen chance of they were in the right place at the right time. They knew the right people. Um, yeah, as we'll hopefully see over the course of this series, they all have such unique stories on their way to the throne that it makes them it makes all of their stories so unique rather than, oh, they were all just women who Henry fell in love with. Well, yeah, or, or, or got made to marry by Cromwell. Sorry, Anne. And like yeah. I say, it's a lot lighter than God and War because that was so much fun. I think we could have kept that going for, you know, another two or three series, but I think it was time to stop where we did because Yeah, otherwise... it was exhausting at the same time as it was fun. Yeah. This is good, though, because we've laid that groundwork of, you know, the politics of the most important political event that sort of overshadows all of these women's lives, not just their reigns. And because their religions for most of them, if not all of them, is one of the most important things in their lives. So now with that knowledge, let's go forward and actually, you know, start from their beginning of when they were born.
I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. with some of these women especially with people like Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour and Catherine Howard very little is actually known about their dates of birth or where they're born and things like that and you know like you say it, it is problematic but it's not uncommon for this for the 16th century just because record keeping wasn't standardized. No if if we're lucky with a lot of people you'll get maybe a notation about um, at least the baptism but like you said that's not standardized it's not expected that there would be a notation made of, you know, Catherine Howard was christened today at the chapel of whatever. So with a lot of these, it's going to be slightly disappointing for you all probably that we can't do like a happy birthday, Anne Boleyn, because we don't actually know her birthday. (laughs) But we can give you a, a window and we can talk about the reasons why historians have determined that window. But then it it makes for a an interesting juxtaposition between all these women who were born into relative obscurity versus somebody like Catherine of Aragon, who was a princess, who, of course, her date of birth was recorded because that's of national importance. So without further ado, should we get into it? Should we explore the birthdays of all of our queens? Let's do it. And as me saying, chronology is not important, but do we want to kick off with Catherine of Aragon? <laughs> Well, we should say that we're going to go not in the chronology of when they married Henry, but the chronology of when they were born. And it's probably not going to sound too much different um, to your ears, but we are going in uh, actual chronology of their birthdays. So we're going to start with the oldest of the queens, who is Catherine of Aragon. And as I said, we are blessed to know her exact date of birth. She was born on December 16, 1485, at one of her parents' castles outside of Madrid. She was the daughter of two of the most powerful people in the world, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, because at the time of her birth, um, her parents, who were both ruling monarchs in their own right, so her her father, Fernando, was the king of Aragon, and her mother, Isabel, was the queen of Castile, and the two kingdoms together form the country we now know as Spain. But this was around the time that they were engaged in a war to oust the Moors, the um, the Islamic Moors from the country. And they were also, you know, starting to dabble in imperialism. Christopher Columbus was just about to you know, embark on his voyages. So this is, Catherine was born into probably the center of the world at this point in human history. No, I think that's all absolutely fair to say. You, you know, picked up on Columbus there. Isabel and uh, Ferdinand actually funded uh, or helped fund part of um, his expedition. And then on the religious front too, because of their war against the Moors and because they were so devout and so tight with the church, the Pope actually named them the defenders of the faith. And in a lot of accounts, you'll see them as um, the most Catholic or like the most holy king and queen. Um, they're high status monarchs in Europe. Uh, in by comparison, the King of England is like, you know, that king on the bleachers. Yeah, Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Even Catherine's mother, uh, Queen Isabel, was actually very active in the war. Like, she didn't necessarily fight in the war, as we see in a lot of dramatic portrayals. 
but she was very hands-on and like she was at the camps with her soldiers. She was part of the strategic planning. She moved with the armies. And actually while she was pregnant with Catherine, she still continued to do all of this. She entered her confinement once it was close to delivery date, obviously for her health and the health of the child. But up until I would, I think like a month before Catherine was born, she was very active. But I think, Really, Catherine of Aragon's upbringing, save the Reconquista, is the most typical part of her life. It's very, very kind of the, t- the education that she receives. So, you know, learning literacy, Latin, Spanish, uh, religion, how to be a good wife, everything like that, you know, it's very, very typical. Because even before her parents made the alliance with England and it was determined that she would be the future Queen of England, which we'll cover in another episode. But even before that was decided quite early in her life, she was already being educated because even if she didn't marry into England, she was going to marry into some other ruling family. Uh, She was much desired on the marriage market. So her parents knew that they had to start this education early and they had to get her prepared for whichever court they were going to marry her into. What I think does kind of separate her away from other educations that other princesses or noble women were receiving is that you know, she would have been exposed to the the diplomacy and the politics and the way that Ferdinand and Isabella conducted themselves on the, the global stage. She would have been a lot more exposed to that than any other part, uh, most other people. So I think that's where things kind of differ. We see her take what she learned from them into her later life. I mean, to when we compare the six wives of Henry VIII with other, you know, standard issue queen consorts, in English and British history, Catherine of Aragon is the most typical in that she was raised to be royal, as you said, like her education involved how to be a queen, not just how to be a wife or a noble woman, but how to be a queen. So in that way, yeah, she is entirely typical. And there's not too much to say in comparison with all the other ones. Like she doesn't have an interesting story about how she got to the throne because she was born to sit on a throne. With that in mind, I think we can switch gears um, and uh, have a look over at at Anne Boleyn. Because, you know, as we were saying at the start, there's a lot more question marks around her and her upbringing. So I think the most kind of likely date or the year that people think she was born was around 1501, but no later than 1508. And and there's a lot of speculation as to the exact date of it um, and and where she was born. But the most likely place she was going to have been born was um, Blickingley Hall in Norfolk, which was the home of the Berlins. Yeah, you'll see a lot of historians debating for whatever reason that, you know, she was actually born in 1501. Eric Ives is the champion of 1501, but a lot of people also say 1507. And a lot of it is because of um, retroactive dating, like somebody maybe made a comment later in her life about her age at her death, or there are a few letters that survive from her adolescence and people can kind of guess from her maturity, maybe how old she is at the time of writing these letters. So there's no exact timing. It's all speculation based on other things. And all of this uncertainty comes from the fact that Anne, though born into nobility, was born into sort of a lowly noble family. Her father was Sir Thomas Boleyn, who was a diplomat in the employ of both Henry VII and Henry VIII. So he was a well-known person at court. But again, he was not one of the premier nobles at court. Although he did make a a pretty good marriage. He married Elizabeth Howard, who was the daughter of 
the Duke of Norfolk at the time, the second Duke of Norfolk, although he had a ton of children, as we'll talk about later with <laughs> Catherine Howard. So uh, there were a lot of people to marry off in his family, but still a really good match for Thomas Boleyn because it allied him with one of the premier noble houses in the kingdom, the Dukes of Norfolk. They were those nobles who weren't just gentlemen, they actually had jobs. And so Thomas Boleyn was actually out of the country a lot on diplomatic missions, or he was serving at court. He was seen as like a working noble. He's interesting because he made a name of himself as the squire of the body at the funeral of Henry VII. And then because of his work there, he was actually then knighted by Henry VIII. He fascinates me as much as he terrifies me. I think he's the definition, if you will, of a social climber. Oh, for sure. And it's fun to watch all of these these advantageous moves that the family makes, not just Thomas, because he instilled the same kind of maneuvering into all of his children. Don't, I think when it worked well for them, it worked really bloody well. So Anne was probably the middle child of the three surviving children of uh, Thomas Boleyn and Elizabeth Howard. The big three that we concentrate on are uh, Anne Boleyn's probable older sister, Mary, and her younger brother, George, uh, who, you know, will be important later. <laughs> but yeah, but even for them, we don't know the exact birth order of the Boleyn children. Mm -hmm. We can infer based on other context clues that this was the birth order. They're just, the dates are not recorded. This family does not become important until Anne's rise and then her later fame. Speaking as a middle child, I quite like the idea of there being a triumphant middle child in Anne. It's fun talking about this kind of stuff because so many people just want a clean answer and they'll just tell you for convenience sake, they'll pick a year like, oh, okay, so Anne Boleyn was born in 1501 or 1507. But what we can do because we're having this conversation is show you how the sausage is made a bit, like all of the reasoning behind why these years are chosen and why we don't know and why historians are so thankful then for standardized record keeping. So please fill out your censuses, people, <laughs> um, because otherwise we, we don't know. And even somebody as important to your national history as Anne Boleyn, we don't know her birthday. It's a nice segue onto Jane Seymour because she was born into similar obscurity, although a little bit different. So Jane was born probably around 1508, making her of a similar age to Anne, depending on what year you choose for her. But the Seymours, unlike the Boleyns, were more of what we would think of as like landed gentry. Like they were a very genteel family. They descended from Edward III. They were a very like well-bred family. And Jane was the younger of several children. So she was born into this relatively large family at probably Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, which uh, we're all chuckling to ourselves. <laughs> but the reason that people pick 1508 for Jane's birth is, again, a later source kind of gives us some context to be able to determine that at Jane's funeral, there were 29 women who were designated her official mourners, which was, you know, part of funerary practice at the time. There would be a chief mourner, but then there would be some other people attending the coffin. And 29 seems like a really specific number to choose until you kind of think that it's probably the one mourner for every year of her life. So it's very probable that Jane died when she was 29 years old, meaning that she was born in 1508 thereabouts. 
with Jane, when you're doing research on her, her birth year and things like that, because so little is known, people will try and fill in the gaps. And when I say people, I mean Google or your, the search engine of your choice. It will pick up on a lot to do with Edward's birth year or, you know, her being the mother of Edward who died in childbirth. For as much as you then try and find Jane where, uh, when you're looking at her, we then lose her again. Well, it goes back to what we said about Anne in that Jane, probably even less so than Anne, was not expected to be anybody important uh, because Jane, her parents were Sir John Seymour and then her mother was Marjorie Wentworth. And as I said, they were sort of the equivalent of the landed gentry. They didn't have a job like Thomas Boleyn had a job. He w- They were not making themselves useful to the crown in any sort of way other than like, you know, owning land. So... Jane was probably only expecting to marry some minor noble and she too would have produced children and that would be that. I feel like Jane is an odd one because I feel like the more you try and uncover about her, the more you end up losing about her as a person. Yeah, because there's so much unknown. And at some point you just start projecting other experiences onto her, you know, based on the experiences of other women or what you would think that she would be thinking or what her upbringing should look like, but we don't know for sure. So it just goes to show you that her becoming queen was a complete accident. big shakeup in the lineup. We thought we were being very clever when we decided to talk about the Queen's birth dates in chronological order of them being born. But it turns out that the only thing different about it was that now we get to Catherine Parr instead of Anne of Cleves. It is the plot twist you weren't expecting, but you stayed for anyway. So Catherine Parr was born in 1512. Uh, We know that year pretty much for sure, though we don't know at what point during that year she was born. But her parents, sort of like the Boleyns, were actually working nobles. Um, her father, Sir Thomas Parr, was in the household of Henry VIII, serving Henry as one of his gentlemen. And then her mother, Maud Parr, was in Catherine of Aragon's household, serving the queen as one of her ladies. So what's interesting is that both of her parents were working pretty much up to Maud's confinement at the time she gave birth to her daughter, Catherine. So Catherine was probably born in the townhouse that they used in London while they were serving at court, which was at the Blackfriars in London. So I just, I think that's interesting is that Catherine was the future queen and she was, you know, her mother was pregnant in the household of another queen. Like, it's just, it's a very meta moment. <laughs> it's very foreboding. And the thing that I think a lot of people don't necessarily put together that it's it's just it's one of those like weird kind of mind bending things is that Catherine Parr was definitely named after Catherine of Aragon, because, as we said, her mother, Maud Parr, was one of Catherine's ladies in waitings and one of her favored ladies in waitings. They were actually pretty close, but it's actually likely because Catherine carried this name and because her mother was so close with Catherine of Aragon that Catherine of Aragon was Catherine Parr's godmother. Like, it's really likely that that is the case. So there's, there's two things about this. Firstly, I'm obsessed with this. And secondly, it's just one of those things that I always find this a bit, not always, because, you know, we were discussing this just before we were recording, and we are both saying, 
why don't we know this to be more a, a more widely circulated fact or you know potential connection between them because it's so interesting you know we'll, we'll jump the gun a bit and speak for Catherine Howard too but in the in the reign of the king and queen it's very very common in noble families especially that you have a lot of babies named after the king and you have a lot of babies named after the queen so we know for sure that Catherine Parr was named after Catherine of Aragon but we it's probably the case too that Catherine Howard was named after Catherine of Aragon it's just so bizarre that Henry married two <laughs> women who were named after his first wife like and he it's said he just, didn't love her <laughs> yeah like can we have a moment of silence while you all like process this information because <laughs> it took us a minute to wrap our heads around as well because i've seen a lot of jokes about how you know henry clearly liked Catherine's, and it's actually no he was married to a woman named Catherine for so long that by the time he was marrying numbers uh, five and six, they were actually named after his first wife. I mean, that's some midlife crisis going on there somewhere for him somewhere, but um, that's a joke for a different day. <laughs> so Catherine was born into this in a different way, I think. Like, she yeah. was always around court, and um, though her father died when she was quite young, she was exposed to the sense of, like, duty and service to the crown and to the royal family. And then just for the sake of balance uh, of what we had in part one, let's cut across to someone who isn't well documented again and whose life didn't revolve from the centre of court, Anne of Cleves. And this is another one where you think, well, she was born into royalty, so of course they would have documented her year of birth. And, well, they did, but what actual day she was born on and even the month she was born in is up for debate. It's probably June, but some historians say September based on how they interpret different records. Now we can make the comparison between Anne of Cleves, who though born into royalty was born into minor royalty versus Catherine of Aragon, whose parents were like the most important people in the world. So of course you document her birth, but Anne of Cleves, it's Oh, she's the daughter of the Duke of Cleves. Who knows, even knows where that is? Who cares? I suppose, really, if we're thinking about it logically, the fact that she was born into minor royalty in Dusseldorf and Cleves, you know, now what we know as Germany, it makes a lot of sense that religious connections aside should be attractive to an attractive match for Cromwell. Because, you know, you're not going to have her vying for the same amount of political power or that kind of um, significance. Henry was still going to be the, 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 the boss in charge. It was an honor for her to yeah. join into his family. Yeah, Anne was the daughter of uh, John III, who is the Duke of Cleves, and his wife Maria. And as Callie said, it's modern day Germany. But I think what a lot of people don't realize about medieval and early modern Germany is that it didn't exist. It was a whole mess of like these little principalities and dukedoms and if you go into google and you look at a map of early modern germany it, it looks like the world's hardest jigsaw puzzle it's just a mess <laughs> so cleves was one of these random little states and it was actually part of the holy roman empire at the time so Anne was a, a minor royal i mean she grew up very well in a beautiful palace with a lot of money and her father had wealth and power but compared to somebody like Catherine of Aragon, she was a nobody. Um, one of a thousand who parents thought, actually, Henry is now wife number four. I think this is a good idea. Off we go. Yeah. In the, um, the Q&A special we just did for our first anniversary, one of the questions was, why did these women even want to marry Henry? Did they think that they would have 
better success than the first two. And it's like somebody, if your father was the Duke of Cleves and said, this would be a really good match for my family to up our importance on the hierarchy of Europe. It didn't matter what you thought. It didn't matter what happened to you. It just mattered that now people actually know that there is a principality called Cleves. So yeah, she was born in uh, Dusseldorf, if that helps clarify geographically. Anne was one of the, she was young enough to actually have been brought up as a Protestant. Um, She didn't necessarily know the shift between the two religions. So it kind of created this era of austerity, I think, in her upbringing, where she was actually fairly sheltered in comparison to some of the other more worldly courts, like even England in comparison as a worldly court. If we are to take 1515 as her year of birth, you know, as you were saying, being two at the time that the Reformation was kickstarted in 1517, it's not going to make a difference. Like, like you say, like, that's the only world you're ever going to have known. Our youngest queen is Catherine Howard, who checks in somewhere between 1521 and 1525. Again, you're guessing the theme here where uh, we don't actually have a solid idea of when she was born. But unlike all of the other ones, I think Catherine Howard was the one who was born into the most obscurity. Like there was so much unknown about how she came into the world. We know that she was born between 1521 and 1525 simply because of like the birth order of her siblings and just context clues about her life. And we know that she was born probably at her parents' home in Lambeth in London. But other than that, um, we, we just don't know anything about how she came into being. So we know that her father was Lord Edmund Howard, who was one of the sons of the second Duke of Norfolk. But the second Duke of Norfolk had a lot of kids. So Edmund, not being the older son and the one who inherited, kind of, I think, got lost in the crowd. And then Catherine herself was actually the 10th child of her mother, Joyce Culpepper, because Joyce Culpepper was married a couple of times and had a lot of kids. So Catherine's story, I think, is one of kind of being lost in the crowd of her father is sort of one of the younger sons of this guy with not exaggerating 20 children. And she herself is one of the youngest of 10. It's a lot. And I think it's fair to say, like, when we were both looking into this for um, recording this episode, we were quite shocked that she came from so many, a family of so many, but also at the same time, not really shocked because this wasn't uncommon it starts to make her life make a lot more sense. She's the one that there, there is the most question marks around. I don't know. Like, I always just got the impression of that she would be a lot more well-known, at least in her family, because she is descended from one of the premier noble families. She's Her grandfather is the Duke of Norfolk, so you would think that that would allow her th- enough connections, but not when you're one of the youngest in this sea of people. I mean... This connection, too, means that she was the first cousin of Anne Boleyn. So Catherine's father and Anne's mother were siblings. But again, her those were two kids out of 20 of the second Duke of Norfolk. So there, Anne Boleyn had a lot of first cousins. She wasn't necessarily paying attention to this this kid. And unless you know, you're in line to inherit or your father's in line to inherit something or you're making a name for yourself, why is anyone going to pay attention? As we've been saying, it's just a case that we're even talking about her at all and lamenting the fact that we don't know anything about her early life because she happened to be thrown into the path of Henry. She had the connections enough to get her to court, and then she just happened to catch his eye. We wouldn't be talking about her otherwise. 
you know what she, she has does. the name going for her the howard name is it'll open doors and that's clearly what happened for her and uh again just for kind of context just to show you where we're kind of situated in the timeline the projected years of Catherine's birth, the 1521 to 25 window, is about the time that Henry is starting to freak out because Catherine of Aragon hasn't given him any living children other than Mary. And we're, we're getting the great matter is kind of like taking shape. Just to show you where we are in the timeline, that's when Catherine Howard was born. That baffles me. I know. It's just. It hits home how young she was. I mean, we always come back to this idea of she's not fully developed as a human being yet because she is so young and that makes her story all the more tragic. But then you actually think about it in this context and you're like, oh, she was young. Yeah. Yeah. It stresses <laughs> me out. She was young, guys. She was young. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I think it is so important then that we're able to break out of that chronology and that stagnated divorce beheaded died divorce beheaded survive because it doesn't really do much justice to the amount of time that we're talking about you know when these women were born like Catherine of Aragon was born in 1485 and then we're talking someone who was then born potentially between 1521 and 1525 this is where I know we've said before that we're not good with numbers and we are not number people but dates <laughs> This is where it all kind of becomes real. Like, I think a lot of times we talk about these things like they're a story or they're more theoretical. But then when you actually see the numbers on paper, you're like, oh, wow. Like, have us yeah. it occurring to us how young Catherine Howard was, it hits home. So I hope that going through the list of their birth dates like this kind of helps you do that, too. Uh, you, the listener. I don't know about anybody else, but it helps me. So... So that's been this episode. <laughs> Just blowing your minds with some with some dates. Yeah, hopefully throughout the series, we're going to keep making these connections between all of their early lives. Because as we said, we can do that with their queenship. I mean, because their queenship is something that they all have in common. But just looking at their early lives and the experiences that shaped them and comparing those two, it's going to give us such a clearer picture of who these women were. And hopefully even this small introduction, just getting your bearings in the timeline has helped us start to think about that. So all the episodes of the series, we're going to focus on maybe some individual experiences of the queens, but putting them into the wider context of what that meant for them and their queenship, but also as a person growing up in the early modern world. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Kate and I will discuss the travel logs of Catherine of Aragon and Anna Pease, how they made it to England to become queens. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, our new Facebook page, and if you like what we're doing, leave a rating and a review. Long live the queens!